Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Printing Money, where we take a deeper look at the transactions behind some of the most innovative 3D printing businesses. My name is Alex Kingsbury, and joining me is my co-host, Danny Piper. Hello, Danny. Hey, Alex. It's great to join you. It's been fun to do these uh, on stages at conferences, but it's going to be, I think, even more fun to do a deep dive on some of these topics. So let's jump into it. That's right. Uh, I mean, you and I love having these conversations, and so we thought, heck, why not make a podcast out of it? So here we are. It's been a really interesting time, though, as far as you know, money, uh, financing, investment, M&A in the 3D printing world goes. Uh, do you want to maybe give us, Danny, a little bit of a recap on what's been happening over the last couple of years and maybe just go back to you know, what's been your role in this space? Yeah, sure. So uh, hitting the rewind button, I mean, I've, I've been in the investment banking industry for 20 years. I started my career in the technology side of things and doing space type work. Um, but I think from a standpoint of looking at this from an investment banking standpoint, I like to think I have a little bit more technical background than than a lot. So we like 3D printing because that's really what what you know, essentially most of these transactions involve is integrating a new technology or new material and thinking about what we've done in this space, we've done a lot in metals, we've done ceramics, we've done polymers, and I'll give you some highlights of some of the types of transactions that we've done. We've done the sale of more 3D to Nikon. We've actually done a couple of deals with Nikon. The investments that they've done in Opticis and hybrid manufacturing technology. On the polymer side, we've done a couple of transactions. We did all of Oxford Performance Materials transactions with Hexel and JSR Corporation. We did structure polymers transactions with Avonic. We did the printer press series A with Solve. We also on the ceramic side, we did Eagle Engineering Solutions sale to KCK Beehive. We were involved in composite 3D printing with Arivo and Airbus on their series B. Uh, and early days in the metal parts, Nuvotronics was one of the uh, early ones that we may even touch on in this podcast. So we've really hit metals, ceramics, bunch of materials, different types of equipment, um, and we've even uh, touched on some software companies too. So we're really usually involved in M&A. That's our favorite piece of it. But we've also done a number of financings as well. And we can sort of parlay that into a lot of our discussions today. And when you say we, who is we? Newcap Partners, yeah, absolutely. So we're a boutique investment bank and we're based in Los Angeles, but we've got people up in Silicon Valley. We've got some on the East Coast in South Carolina and Virginia as well. Yeah, excellent. And the last couple of years for you, what have you seen in the 3D printing space? It's been a wild ride. Um, I mean, I don't want to go back uh, too far, but if you look at sort of the, the COVID timeframe, a lot of things came to a screeching halt just because a lot of the development work couldn't be done when people were out of the labs. And then all of a sudden it came back with an incredible vengeance. 2021 was just probably the most epic year ever uh, for almost every firm transacting in the space between capital raises, M&A deals. It was a stellar year only to have all the wheels come off the bus in 2022 and sort of we're now digging our way back out, which is a good thing. So it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride is probably the best way to describe it. That makes 2023 a really interesting year to be doing this podcast. And so we hope to do this every month um, for the next little while, at least uh, see how we go. Hey, um, and talk about some of the investments in, in 3D printing. 
as for myself, I, uh, I'm an engineer by, by training, by background. I primarily worked in the R&D and commercialization space. I'm, I'm what, we, what you'd call a commercialization engineer, so very much working on scaling up of projects, which is leading me into, has led me into um, securing investment for, for commercialization projects. Um, in the last six years, I've been working as a consultant, um, doing primarily technical due diligence for investment banks. So that's where I come into things. And so hopefully between the two of us, we should be able to provide you with a little bit of insight and maybe even entertainment about some of these deals. It's been such a really big week. We already had loads of things to talk about, Danny. And then Nano Dimension just dropped um, a major announcement. Uh, this is sort of in the background of a lot of shareholder activism activity that's been happening um, so maybe we'll just go into into that side of things because I think that's really important. They have had a couple of uh, the, the the shareholder activism has been going for quite some time. Danny, do you want to jump into that for a sec? I think you first have to start this story going back to really February of 2020, and and in the the series of capital raises, I mean, they're claiming to have raised 1.54 billion dollars in that sort of February 2020 to February 2021 timeframe. That is, by all standards, the largest kind of sequence of financings that has been done in the 3D printing industry, sort of in a single kind of set of a series of you know continuous tranches. And it's remarkable. I mean, and so the fundamental piece of that is what did they need so much money for? What was so compelling in that story that they couldn't do this in Milestone Base or others? They raised $1.54 billion. Um, so that's the starting point. So so they did it. And, and by the way, this is probably the first kudos to you know, of Stern, right? I mean, I would say that uh, it's a remarkable feat. I, I just, again, I don't think there's a parallel in the industry. There are a lot of big financings that have been done. We can talk about Carbon or Desktop and, and quite a few others that have, you know, hit some big financings along the way, but nothing to this magnitude in such a short time frame. And we must say that that was for the drag, like that was primarily off the back of the Dragonfly, which is additively manufactured electronics, printing PCBs essentially, which is which which is which is not an easy um, or you know, I wouldn't say a supermarket ready technology. So so we've talked about this before, Alex. So when you think about this technology set, right? Whether it's you know printed electronics and multi-material 3D printing, it's probably the hardest of the hard in, in the categories of 3D printing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of the landscape is littered with very difficult, challenging situations for companies that have attempted it and have had to pivot. And the first one that comes to mind for me is Voxel 8. And uh, right. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. back in the day spent out from Harvard. Same thing. Right. And they pivoted out. And so when you think about nano dimension, you know, I don't know what your perspective is. I just haven't seen a lot of dragonflies flying off the shelves these days. Um, so that business. Right. I mean, it's. It's been tough, right? I think, and that's where I think there was a lot of anticipation or things that were sold in that financing that were were very hard for some investors to understand is how scalable, how ready, how production ready was that technology. And so I think there's been some pivoting along the way to getting into sort of a, it being a public company because they started as a reverse merger way back. 
that how do you start to demonstrate and show revenues? And so they instead, they've sort of now pivoted and changed some strategies a little bit to accommodate the probably the longer duration time it's going to take for the Dragonfly to become commercializable. And, and that's sort of leading to the problem is what was the real use of proceeds for this $1.54 billion that they've raised? And what and, was the need? You know, what, what what was the, you know, how can you really justify that based off that one single technology? I mean, they've obviously had an acquisition strategy having since raised um, and done right. a number of acquisitions, none of which have been particularly big, by the way, um, you know, all pretty relatively small um, acquisitions. And maybe looking across the portfolio of acquisitions, um, there is some sense in bringing it together, but but perhaps lacking an overall or an overarching integration strategy. And, and that's sort of where, I mean, when I think about activist shareholders, they come in different flavors and, right, they either think they can get a better value if they replace management and they can do various things, you know, do better synergies with somebody else, sell the company, take it private. In this case, it's largely centered around the idea that there's this excessive cash. They want cash to come back. Uh, return to shareholders because the burn rate is starting to increase in the company. If we look at it, I think they had operating losses of $127 million, um, you know, in the last sort of, uh, you know, 12 months, which is up from $83 million the year before when they did 10 million in revenues. So this 127 million is on a $42 million run rate. So, so they're seeing the run rate, you know, or the burn rate pick up on this company and they're sort of starting to get concerned. And I think they're concerned that when they look at the sequence of acquisitions, are they cohesive? Do they tell a story where they're adding value in a way? So I think that sort of sets the stage. I think there's obviously two sides to every story. So, you know, I think that's something that, uh, you know, I'm not going to say who's right or who's wrong here, but I think it's clearly one remarkable that, they raised so much money so early. And, you know, again, I, I have tremendous, uh, you know, uh, respect for the fact that they were able to pull that off. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know the underlying ways that that happened. I wish I could do that in my business uh, for my clients uh, is simply, but, um, but, but and that's it's why landed I, I them in a huge, it's, it's, it's landed them in a huge sort of predicament though, having raised that amount of money. And, and the issue that they're facing now, Nano Dimension, is that they're trading below, their cash value. Um, and, you know, do you want to maybe just briefly run run through what are the implications of the fact that they're currently trading below their cash value? Their, their, their market cap is less than the cash in their bank. Yeah. So they have, you know, as the most reported stuff, if I'm looking on the balance sheet as of their last reporting date in September, they had 1.02 billion left in cash and they had a, you know, a market cap of 713 billion dollars. So basically the market is saying we're discounting their cash by 31%. Mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of um, the you know sort of the underlying driver. The market is even saying, wait a second, this company isn't even worth the cash on its balance sheet. And that that's sort of the problem, uh, number one. I think and and so it's there there seems to be two groups that have become vocalized here. There's a fund out of Canada, Merchantson. And they've got a website and they go out and they have, uh, you can download their reports of, you know, Save Nano Dimension. And then you have another group that uh, is the Anson Funds out of Texas. And they've also issued some press releases. I think they're a 5% shareholder 
and, and both of them have now come to the table saying there needs to be something done to put controls in the company to ensure shareholder protections. And, and that's sort of driving this whole share, shareholder activism piece of this. So that sort of sets the stage, right, for this big announcement on Stratasys, because you've got these activist shareholders that are out there. They would like to have that money returned. And the CEO is, has a history of doing some smaller acquisitions, as we talked about. But this is sort of, a, you know, this is a use of all the cash, so to speak. And that sort of sets us where we are today. Mm. And I mean, you know, just on the shareholder activism, there's uh, there's a lot of back and forth and we won't, we won't go through it all. But suffice to say, it is getting into a pretty nasty battle, you know, between these shareholders and the CEO. Um, and I think really importantly, uh, there was a, there was a particular flashpoint around it, which was when um, Yoav Stern, the CEO, requested these stock options be repriced that would have given him effective majority control um, of the company. And uh, there's also a lot of concerns. I mean, the, the concerns from the shareholders are multiple and varied. Um, and But one of the biggest concerns seems to be that um, there's a, uh, a, a, a quote-unquote, a Stern-led board um, so that Yoav Stern has control and uh, undue influence over the board and so therefore has sort of carte blanche to just do whatever it is that he wants. That's that's some of the accusations that have been put to Stern. Um, there's been, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, a dedicated website now uh, for this shareholder activism piece from Merchinson. Um, over the weekend or no, on Friday, um, just after the Stratasys announcement, um, Yoav Stern issued a one hour plus video um, that if you are, I don't know, uh, lacking entertainment in your life, as apparently I am, um, you can go and you can go and watch the whole thing. Um, it's it's quite a it's quite a it's quite a phenomenal thing to watch. Honestly, it's it's a uh, for a CEO of a publicly listed company. It's not what I would call the most professional presentation. Um, there's a lot of name calling um, and and things that are just kind of borderline hilarious. Um, accusations of swimming in the Ontario Lake when arithmetic lessons were on. I mean, it just gets very silly. Um, so, you know, and I think that that what, what this all is feeding into are concerns around Stern's leadership, concerns around Stern's decision making um, and, and discernment around some of the options here that are available and also this issue around control of the company and control of the board. Um, and so, yeah, as you mentioned, these shareholders are sort of saying, we don't believe in nano dimension anymore and we would like some of our money back and you need to scale your cash back down to a to a to a number that represents what is reasonable to keep your operations going and to grow them. Yeah, but unfortunately when you see the burn rate going up, right, you don't see that kind of fiscal control going on in the company and mm -hmm. so here we are, right? I mean, I think this is what has now led us to what what do you do to rectify this situation if you're Yoav? And I think that's why the Stratasys acquisition's been kind of sitting behind the scenes. And it's come really now, as we pivot onto this, there's sort of two phases of this. I think the first phase was in July of last year with the initial private placement. They, they bought shares of Stratasys on the open market. Yeah. And um, in a move that shocked everyone, I think, you know, including Stratasys. <laughs> that, that it did, right? And then <laughs> shortly thereafter, 
Stratasys responds with a public announcement that they've uh, put some investor protections in order and a poison pills to prevent uh, a threshold of what a 15% uh, ownership in the company and uh, where they were going to allow shareholders, the existing shareholders to buy shares at, I think it was one cent uh, to, to kind of further dilute and make it harder for Nano Dimension to do incremental purchases. So here we are with a full offer to purchase at $18 a share, which is a premium on the, you know, the basically it was a 28% premium on the, uh, uh, you know, on the stock price when they offered it. So it's, it's a solution that sort of works for Yoav. I'm not sure the shareholders are providing support because I think, you know, when you look at the responses and some of the shareholder board issues from say Anson funds, right. It, it doesn't mean he's got full support from all of his shareholders to do this, but he's certainly gone after to uh, to try to solve his problem on cash. So, and it should be noted that the um, the acquisition um, currently doesn't require a vote from Nano Dimension shareholders. Yeah, so let's. I mean, so they so don't have effectively a say in in this transaction. So, two things: one, I have a comment, and two, one, I have a question for you. So, I mean. Obviously, Stratasys hasn't formally responded yet, and I think that they are likely in a position, they're going to go ahead and mount an investor defense. I don't think this is sort of the the right answer for Stratasys, is, is my guess, and they're going to go ahead, review their strategic options. They've, they've obviously formally notified everybody that they've received this offer, but there are a few things I think they can do that will you know, that are either, if, if it were me, I think they time is on Stratasys' side. If they want this to go away, they have the ability to spend time doing strategic options. And the longer they wait with the burn rate that uh, Nano Dimension has, it's mm-hmm. going to be problematic because it was a $1.1 billion buyout and they have $1.02 billion in cash. So there's a little bit of a gap how they're going to get this deal done. That's only going to get worse as time goes on. Um, and so for... Somebody to fill the gap, either through equity, you need new investors or supportive investors, or B, you need a bank and you need lenders to come in and support that. Um, I think there's going to be a problem to some extent. And so my question for you is, I mean, think about what does a combo look like? I mean, to, to you, you've got a company with a run rate of $42 million trying to buy a company with over $600 million in revenues, um, broader portfolio of products, more established company. You've got the small player. How, how do you see that? I mean, is Yeah, so Stratasys, um, uh, I, I suppose my... I got two threads of thought about it and um, one of the um, synergy or there's a number of synergies that were mentioned by Nano Dimension between between Nano, Nano and, and Stratasys. Um, and look, I guess fundamentally uh, both of them use inkjet printing, um, inkjet AM, and one of the uh, synergies uh, that were mentioned was uh, combining the R&D efforts because R&D is just a cost intensive activity not going to return you know immediately um and also nano is pretty r&d heavy um, particularly for you know their electronics 3d printing 
Um, so do you, do you think their R and D activities are aligned that they're doing the same types of R and D? Cause, cause something tells me Stratasys is going in a little bit different direction with a lot of their R and D activities than probably where nano is. So I just wonder what that crossover is in terms of synergies and cost savings there. I, yeah, I think that's correct. I think that it would probably be more of a matter of, uh, transferring a lot of the know-how within Stratasys over to nano dimension. Um, so not, not combining current R and D activities, um, there is in terms of a portfolio, uh, and just like in, in Stern's defense or Nano's defense, there is a nice portfolio here of some really mature technologies, some really good revenue producing technologies, and then some much more sort of blue sky technologies. Um, so it does make sense from that point of view. And that is why Nano made the investment in Stratasys in the first place. Or that, well, that was the argument around that because it was like, no, we want to invest and sort of balance this portfolio of technologies that we have. I have to say, Nano starts to look a little bit like a, you know, a PE fund, like with, with all that money, <laughs> you well, know, and it's kind of like, who are they? I think they're trying to answer that question themselves. Well, you know, that's, I, that's a, that's a good transition actually, because we're going to jump into the PE side of the world in a moment. And there are some big, there are some moves that are being made in this space in the PE world. I think we have a one or two more public things to talk about before we jump into the PE side, but that's the problem. I just don't see the portfolio approach and how how the acquisition strategy is really shaping up for, for, you know, nano dimension right now. I think it's, you know, they decided just to go blow this all on, you know, on Stratasys and, you know, there's a lot of money that uh, they could be applying in a very, you know, probably thoughtful strategy. So it's, I, I, but I just feel like that, that, that thesis hasn't been nailed down at this point. And that's why Stratasys was the easy button. And we'll see. I think there's a lot for this to play out. I, we're not going to probably see uh, a, a resolution in the next week or so. I mean, I'm guessing we're going to we're going to hear back from Stratasys in the next. Uh, well, that's probably going to be in a week or so. But I wouldn't, you know, again, time's on their side. So the longer they can wait this out, the harder things get for Yoav because he's got his shareholder, you know, problems that he's got to deal with. So time's on Stratasys' side, not Nano's side in this game. Yeah. And burning cash and yeah so i mean you know look takeaways here are uh a stratasys acquisition um would make a lot of sense in terms of warding off these uh, activist investors and uh is the deal likely to go through my bets on no yeah i would too i think that's the biggest odds right now if you're picking it over or under it's uh i think it's in favor of stratasys staying uh as an independent company which which is really going to leave now a big giant question mark for nano dimension. Yeah. So another uh, item that came out um, more recently was uh, Sigma Additive uh, retains Lake Street um, to pursue options for enhancing shareholder value. Um, there's, I think, I feel having read the press release that there's a few sort of financial words here. Uh, would you mind decoding exactly what this is and what this is about, Danny? Yeah, I mean, Lake Street's been retained to come up with probably what's going to be the best outcome for Sigma, and, and I say that because it could be M and A. Um, it's it, yeah. You know, I don't want to rule out that a financing could occur. They've pulled off financings many times over their history. Matter of fact, they've got a long history of financings almost every year to some extent. So that's what Lake Street's going to be up against is helping. Probably it's a, a frankly, save the company. Um, and there's there's a lot of respect I have for what Sigma Labs has tried to accomplish, right? I think this is, 
first of all, in an operating space, uh, we all know in the additive industry that quality monitoring in process controls is something that is an enabler to qualifying major applications. And to me, Sigma, it, again, maybe not as hard as nano dimension, what they were doing on the leading edge of multi-material you know, electronics, but it's still how they didn't get to control the OEMs in this game and they didn't control the customers, but they had a solution that sat in between. And, and so they've done a lot of stuff and sort of developing with universities sort of in process monitoring controls and the research side has driven a lot of it. But if you see on their website in their last investor presentation, they claim to have some good customer relationships with the Airbuses of the worlds and Saffrons. But the reality comes down to this. They've got a market cap of 6 million. They have an enterprise value of 1.23 million. So they have, and that, that's really because there's $4.8 million of cash on their balance sheet, which by the way is a decent amount, except they have a fairly high burn rate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's what's going to be the kicker, right? So they had, you know, last year they had about $9 million in operating losses. So if you think about that $4.8 million, that's about six months worth of burn. And that was as of September. So I think we're probably, you know, so this coming is, up. So this is like an ambulance option is what I would read into. Well, it's just, I, I think Six months need... of runway in these in this year, in 2023, is not a position that any any company needs to be there. They're a listed company, so their financials are laid bare as Look, well. Look, I, I will tell you, there are lots of companies that have been in the, we've got a couple months of cash left, or in some cases, even a couple weeks of cash left, and, and they've been saved. Um but I do think, you know, so I, I don't I don't really want to use the term ambulance option, but it's it's really they're what they're doing is certainly trying to make their best go at figuring out what's the right answer and potentially right home for the company. And and so to me, when I think about this one, Lake Street's got a tough job because frankly, you know, as an investment banker, you know, largely we get paid on success fees and you got to think about the size of the transaction here and how big is this transaction really? And, you know, it's largely going to be predicated on the IP that they have. And, you know, that's where, when you think about it, they, they have claims that they're making right now that they have 25 granted patents and 39 in progress. When I dig in, 17 of those are patents in the United States and 17 more patents in the United States are in process. So the rest of those are foreign patents. Yeah, but zooming I, out, I mean, you know, it's it's patents, yeah, okay. But they, I mean, they also represent patent costs. Um, but, but zooming out, what, what they do as far as in-process monitoring goes is, um, you know, they connect in with OEM APIs, basically giving you machine health data. Uh, that's nothing especially special. Um, but, but really what they've been focusing on doing is like malform monitoring, um, you know, and using thermal cameras. And this is not technology that is uh, like unused elsewhere. I mean, and, and and this is part of Sigma's overall problem. If you go, I mean, what they listed in 2010, wasn't it? Um, so they've been around and on the public markets for a long time. Um, and in the meantime, all of these OEMs have all got their own process monitoring solutions that are equivalent to what Sigma offers. Um, there are other you know, process monitoring technologies out there. They do different things. They monitor process in a different way. 
Um, so you can see those companies are going to have somewhat some value prop um, in the market. But as far as what Sigma offers, it's like, well, the OEMs are like, and anyone who's got a modern machine is like, I've got that capability already. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think there's a place and they have customers that would say that they don't, um, if I'm going to take the the counter uh, point to that. But I think you're hitting on it, right? I think in, in some ways, I think this is going to be, you know, there, is there a buyer for this? And that's why I came back to the IP. I think there's probably, you're right, the, the OEMs are starting to replicate. They, they want to fill in the voids to say their solution has quality controls put into it that have all the right characteristics for the, the key customers to solve it. But it's interesting. I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about sort of the competitive landscape here right now, because you've got, I think it was interesting that you know, somebody local to you here and out of assurance just raised $4.1 million in December. And mm. maybe you could talk about them for a second. Uh, yeah. So that is um, a very different approach to process monitoring. And so the idea really with process monitoring is if you can use a number of different approaches and integrate all of those approaches, then you really are going to get a complete and holistic um, picture of, of part health. Um, and, um, and, and one of the challenges that, that, process monitoring in general encounters is that all of the uh, qualification and standards that we currently work to are based on inputs so and and you know doing your allowables um, it's not based on process monitoring currently it, and and the thing is it should be you know it should be based on process monitoring but the work just hasn't been done to properly qualify those process monitoring techniques um, but yeah, additive assurance is um, uh, works off uh, uh, light um, that comes off, you know, your reflections off the melt pool, um, and they process that signal, you know, machine learning data and 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 correlate it to defects. Sure, um, there are other companies also in space um, that we know about. You know, Adiguru is another one, US based. Phase three D is another one. Um, we have a, a company that does um, acoustic monitoring as well. Uh, so, so, you know, there, there are a number of different possibilities, but, but I guess what we're saying here is these are all newer companies that have come about, um, later on in the piece, and they're now addressing process monitoring from a different angle, knowing that the OEMs already have their melt pool monitoring pretty much sorted. Well, I mean, actually I'll throw one more out there. Stratonics. I mean, they've been around for a long time. They're largely focused in the DED segment done a lot with Optimec over time, and they've been a positive cash flow company since day one because they've had to be. They were sort of developed out of the founder's garage. And from a revenue perspective, right, I mean, they're, they've done actually quite well to make a go of it. Is it a big company? No, it's a small niche company for sure. Um, and that's where, you know, they didn't have the high burn rate. They haven't had to go out and raise additional capital to do it. So there's a place for sort of these in-situ monitoring and process monitoring companies. But I do think it's a tough market mm. for these companies because they don't always control the destinies. They're always at the mercy of what the OEMs are going to give them or allow them to have access to in terms of data sets coming off the machines. And, you know, and the customers are looking for people to provide software solutions that are elegant, that provide the data in a meaningful package that they don't have to... There's starting to be a lot of data coming off of these systems, but you can't make any heads or tails of it because it's not packaged up right. And that's sort of where these companies seem to be fitting in the fold. Are these ever going to be giant companies? And that's what kind of blows me away a little bit on the financings for some of these. Uh, I don't want to steer people away from this market because it's important. But I just think this these are going to be very niche companies in in the market. They're important. Don't 
that don't don't take that as if they're not important because I do think they are. But I think it's just one of those things where it's hard to scale a big company here. And so from venture types of investors, you know, kudos to Out of Insurance. I think they're doing something you know pretty interesting as well. Sigma Labs. I hope they find a solution uh, or a home. Uh, for the technology, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's an OEM or somebody else that likes some of the patent portfolio that can stick some of the IP, you know, into what they're already doing and, and take it on. But good luck yeah. to Lake Street. Yeah. Um, I mean, my take on that is honestly, if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. You know, an OEM yeah. them up. Yeah. All right. Um, on to the next one. Speaking of uh, OEMs, um, SLM Solutions uh, and the Nikon deal has closed on January 26th, which we, we knew about last year, but the deal has been done. Um, Nikon is a, a Japanese, but, you know, global multinational company um, and has been making investments in, in AM in a pretty steady and, and pretty concerted effort sort of a way. Um, they've had a lot of R&D internally happening, um, particularly around micro DED. Um, but then there's also been some deals that you've been involved in, Danny, um, that they <laughs> that, that that have been transacted. So um, do you want to take it away and maybe talk about Nikon and their interest in, in AM? Yeah, look, I, I have a lot of respect for the Nikon team and what they're doing here and their approach to the market. And, you know, I, I say that they started, you know, I, I, I'm I really can't comment much on their very first investment that I that I'm aware of. I had nothing to do with it. That was carbon way back. But when they started looking at the metal market, sort of their first play was the acquisition of More 3D, which we were involved with. We did all the financing rounds for More 3D, and it gave them a front row seat to see where customers were engaging, where they were in the process, how they were utilizing, where the sticking points were designed for additive was, where the capabilities of the machines were. And it gave them a, a good perspective. I think that justifies sort of where they're going. Um, they've done a couple other investments in offices. This is more application focused on antenna systems that uses, they, they have a few SLM machines, by the way. Um, and, um, you know, but they have some big application space uh, in antennas. And then hybrid manufacturing technologies gives them a suite of, it leverages the DED capabilities that they have and in integrating that into a form factor that goes very well into a variety of manufacturing platforms that ranges from robotic arms into CNC environments. So, and, and when I think about where they're going, right, they're very methodical in their approach and they're bringing a lot of thought process to it. They're not going and just firing off doing lots of things that are unrelated. They have a, they have a strategy that they're employing here. So it's, it's, whether it's the applications that are using the technologies that they make, the companies that are also using, like in more 3D's case, uh, you know, the, building those applications. So they're, they're building out a, a knowledge base. And, and then they're obviously the big culmination of that is buying SLM. So mm. to me, this is sort of an interesting play. And we're going to talk about sort of this in our next episode too, by the way, and sort of the state of where we are with powder bed fusion. So I don't want to I don't want to beat this. I just want everybody to listen to episode two. But uh, but but on this one, I think it's it's really interesting to see a major company from the semiconductor industry bring that kind of capability into this industry. We've seen Lamb Research make investments. We've seen Applied Materials make some investments here, and uh, but nobody's done a control transaction, and nobody's sort of taken the reins the way Nikon has. Yeah. And I mean, if we want to think about other, you know, major, you know, OEM buyouts, you know, GE would be the other one, um, but they're a, a different sort of, a, you know, a 
they're a different breed of company, G, from Nikon for sure. Um, Nikon, uh, I think what's really heartening to see is this vision 2030 um, that Nikon has. It's very much led from the top. Um, and as you mentioned, very much uh, there is a strategy around um, getting involved in, in Metal AM. You know, I mean, my, my takeaway from this is which what I think is interesting is we're seeing a bit of a shift of power. Um, you know, Germany has been such a home for you know, machine builders. And, um, and this is now placing a, a German company, what was a German company, um, into Japanese hands. So, so there's a, a shift that's happening there across the globe. And to me, if I kind of look back, I, I, I see that as being that the Metal AM in particular has been de-risked sufficiently for a player like Nikon to invest and, and to incorporate that as a big part of their strategy um, going into the future. And so I, I think it's a real sign of maturity from Metal AM. Um, I mean, you could you can make whatever investments, you know, and, and acquisitions you wanted to in Metal AM. I think in general, that's the takeaway here. Um, and, 100%. Uh, yeah. 100% agreed. Let, let me piggyback on something. And I think it's a good transition point, by the way, And if we're getting ready to, to, to move on, is that this industry needs more investors, period. We need more corporate strategics. Um, and we certainly, and to see this move, I, hopefully it uh, opens the door for more strategics to look at the maturity of this industry and where it's going. Because I think there is a, a sentiment by many large manufacturing companies that this is still small, it's still sort of R&D, still prototypey, um, and they're not ready. They would, they would rather do the big giant acquisition later when somebody else does all the hard work to get it to the point of its scaling. And so, you know, kudos to Nikon for taking a leap here and jumping in. And I hope it starts to prompt a bunch of the other strategic investors, which is largely what we've been talking about. But I'd like to transition this to the private equity world, because, you know, when I say there's a need for investors in this market, we, we have a need. We're going to talk about financings in the next episode, which is VC. And I just want to preface sort of the PE world a little bit different in the private equity world. And yes, VC is a subset of private equity. We could, we could all call sort of private money and private markets as different. But I distinguish these two very succinctly. VC is sort of your optimist. We're going to build a better world. We're going to take a lot of risk and we're going to go out and we're going to you know, build great things. Private equity is a little bit different. We're not big risk takers. We're financial engineers. We're very conservative in our approach. And so they think differently. They act differently. And so we've got actually a couple of deals that have popped up that are related that I, I sort of want to bring a heads up. But I, I'll say this just as a preface, um, because I, I kudos to both of these companies. Largely, the private equity world still doesn't get 3D printing. They, they don't understand it. It's, one, it's technical, but two, it's still they're all small companies and they just see risks and red flags and they don't like those things. And so it's been hard. I probably spend... I don't know, the better part of six to eight hours a week, probably 30 to 60 minute calls with private equity groups, educating them on this market. And I'll tell you, I get a lot of glossed over looks and not understanding it. So I love it when you have a couple stories like the two we're going to talk about right now. So First up um, being Fast Radius. Um, so Fast Radius, we're part of the SPAC cycle. Uh, of 21. Um, and we're a little bit later into the cycle and I think took a lot of people by surprise, actually. Um, I think there was a lot of questions asked at the time um, around, you know, was this, was this really ever the intention or was, or is this just sort of making hay while the sun shines? It was a really great market to be, uh, you know, 
spacking in. Um, but anyway, uh, they have now been acquired by Cybridge Technologies. Um, and for, for about, you know, $15.9 million. Um, and, and really Fast Radius was a bit concerning for me because I felt like they were a relatively solid business. Um, uh, and, and if we look at sort of the type of business that they're in, it's like, it's, it's, I don't want to call them like a bureau, but it's, it's like, you know, you send them your drawings, your parts, whatever, and they'll give you a quote back. And then they outsource that to any number of different facilities that they either own or subcontract to, um, and, uh, and then deliver you back your part. Protolabs is another example. Exometry is another example. Um, Exometry IPO'd in the same year. Um, I think it's a questionable business model, honestly, to be on the public markets, but uh, anyway, the point well, is, I, I don't think you have to say that's questionable anymore. I think the uh, failure <laughs> of the SPAC and the fact that they were sort of, uh, delisted and had to go through this process of, uh, finding a home, um, has proved out your point. So that's not a question. They, they weren't ready. And, mm. and frankly, I think some of these companies, they didn't have the scale and the infrastructure by which to really, uh, to, to, to be a public company. That, that part's right. It doesn't mean yeah. that the underlying pieces of the company, there weren't good things going on in that company. And that's why there were, right? I think this whole, you know, there's validation right now. Uh, the team behind Cybridge, you know, we'll talk about that here is Crestview Partners. Um, and and I think this is this is where it's really sort of, the, and, I, and this is why this is a private equity transaction in my mind. And this is not a normal private equity transaction. And, and the reason I say that is Crestview Partners is a traditional private equity group. They have $11 billion asset under man management right now. They're on their fourth fund, which is a $2.38 billion fund, uh, largely consisting of pension funds. So, right, pension funds allocate some to VC, high risk. They do some to lower risk assets, and then they have public securities that they do as well. So they have asset allocations. So, so they are largely sitting in this window. They have $1.8 billion of dry powder uh, left in the fund. They're in fund four right now. That was... Technically, I think it was closed in 2021, but it was, uh, you know, active in 2020. So this sort of hits the timing thing, right? Who's Cybridge, by the way, right? That That's when this announcement came out. It, it sort of is a devil take. And I think this is what a lot of people did. I don't, I think, you know, it caught a lot of people off guard because it wasn't really in the additive industry per se. And, or it was, you know, kind of seeking up everybody, but Cybridge was actually founded by Crestview Partners back in 2019. And in the way, I, I, and I don't know the, the history on this one, but the way I, I, I'm guessing this happened is that they had a thesis, whether that came from what do they call executives and residents at Crestview or, and that's normally how these things start to operate. They bring in somebody with a certain domain level of expertise. They put a thesis together and they go act on it. That's not the norm in private equity, by the way. There's normally these opportunistic, we go out, we buy, you know, things in certain domain areas that we do know, but they're opportunistic on what the deals are, whether they're corporate carve out. Everybody, there's different flavors for private equity. I mean, but in this, this case, opportunistic. Well, well, but when you think about Fast Radius, this is sort of the, you know, was it the 14th deal that they've done? So in 2019, they start this company, but it's not really funded until uh, Crestview closes Fund 4. And they put $200 million to work in this fund. And when they put it to work, boy, they put it to work. So they've done 15 deals to date since 2020. So this is sort of the classic roll-up strategy that you do see with private equity. 
oftentimes they start with a big platform first, but here they came out and they cobbled together a lot of smaller acquisitions that build out a, a broader capability. So, so from here, right, I mean, Fast Radius is sort of fitting alongside of, you know, the other acquisitions that they've done to date. Um, I think today, right now, they have, you know, Cybridge now has a thousand employees, over 200 engineering people. They have 18 production facilities. They claim to be in five countries. So when you think about it, right, I, I like the concept. I mean, the idea that they're for, again, private equity groups forward thinking, talking about digital manufacturing and technology driven manufacturing. Um, again, I, I, I can't so tell you how much, of them. <laughs> well, you live it, you live and die in this every day and you've been doing it forever. And this is like, oh my God. But to hear private equity say it without a prompt is great. I mean, I, I just, it's kudos to them. They're executing on a roll-up strategy here. And so, I, you know, I think that uh, this is, by the way, the second deal that they've done that includes additive, um, because I think they had done an acquisition a little while back. It was actually in March of 2022 of Advantage Engineering. So if you think about Fast Radius, it's largely polymer-based. And when you get into sort of additive engineering, it too, by the way, was largely polymer based, but it at least had some metal capabilities with SLM. Mm -hmm. But again, largely a lot of what they're doing is buying injection molding companies, buying, you know, tightly precision tooled companies um, that would, you know, fundamentally, you know, add on to what they're already doing. So, yeah, I would say Fast Radius had... Um... A really big facility uh, machining center um, in Chicago, so which was brand spanking new and pretty amazing. So they did have metal capability, um, and I would say that's that was probably part of the um, attraction for for Cybridge. Yeah, I do think they're still leaning heavier onto the polymer side of the world. They do have some machining capabilities as well, but um, you know their most recent acquisition was Cabiform. And it's another plastic injection molder that they just closed on that deal uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And that's really more precision molding, tight tolerances for the um, type of uh, a work for the pharmaceutical and, and other kind of companies. So, mm. you know, again, more polymer focused. But uh, so that that's sort of the Crestview deal and where Fast Radius landed. It, But it's, it's an interesting story. And it's it's not the same, but it's similar to what's going on with admin engineering. Yeah. So, uh, and I, this is a story I think that's a little bit more specific and thesis driven and admin engineering. Yeah. The that, reason we're that, bringing it up. I mean, that's been a very considered effort around additive manufacturing as far as a PE, you know, uh, list of, you know, acquired companies that they've just gone on an absolute mission. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, American American Industrial Partners is obviously in the name that they, they've been focused on advanced manufacturing capabilities. They've had a, a long history in the composites industry, so they understand complex manufacturing, different materials. And largely the thesis behind this one uh, was to organize a group that was going to be sort of a center of excellence for their portfolio companies. And then as soon as they got this started, they had Mark Saberton, sort of who's been a technical advisor across the portfolio companies, really start up this initiative inside of American Industrial Partners. And they bought some of the uh, admin engineering assets out that are in Florida. 
but quickly in sort of the, the last year and a half have done six acquisitions and there's some pretty big names in the 3D printing world that, that come out of this one. And so it's worthy of note, not everything that they're doing is 3D printing. They bought some, some machining assets as well, but yeah, I think the ones to highlight right now, obviously they just closed the Densmore deal in January, but um, their first acquisition was Third Dimension. I think uh, you've got a, a Dino Award winner at AMUG in mm. uh, Bob Markley, mm-hmm. uh, who's now an EVP at Adman. Um, they, in January 2022, bought Castion, who another Dino Award winner in Yaoping Gao, um, yeah. and comes out of Aerojet Rocketdyne in you know, very great capabilities that he's developed, you know, both on the ground for, uh, he was using the concept laser uh, machines uh, for really, you know, high value, highly engineered, you know, very difficult parts and very built. So he's now the chief scientist at Admin. Well, I was going to say to acquire Castion just for the simple fact of acquiring Yaoping's brain <laughs> right, is a very uh, shrewd move. Yeah. yeah that's right. so- and then to, to run through the rest, we had Harbeck in November 22 um, and then December 21, uh, Demail, is that the right pronunciation? Yeah, good question. And then sort of the other two that fit with those were tech manufacturing and Stanley engineering. So, um, but those are more on the machining side of the world. So for this, for this audience, they may not be as impressed, but. But it is part of the overall scheme of, there is a, a broader story there though, because I mean, what's really important and we should not forget, and I think we'll touch upon this a bit in episode two, is that um, it's not just about the 3D printing process itself. It's actually around what you need to do further downstream as well. Yeah. So my final part and comment on these two, one, it's, it's great that we have additional investors, sophisticated investors coming in. Both of these are unique where they've sort of stood up these companies with theses that lend themselves to incorporating additive and they're not additive pure play deals. So don't, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, that type of story, but I think in the future, we're just going to see additive increasingly become more part of the larger part of the manufacturing landscape. So um, I expect to see some more of this. Yeah. I was going to say maybe some more PE deals in future, you know, some more PE, some more sophisticated PE investors. Yep. No, I think that's exactly right. So perfect. All right. I think that uh, concludes uh, us for the first episode of Printing Money. Thank you so much, Danny, for riffing with me as always. Um, This is episode one of Printing Money. Uh, Please feel free, go and check out 3dprint.com for all more analysis and insights into the deals done in the 3D printing industry. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye.